Good morning. I know that uh, some of you were expecting us to begin our study of uh, Paul's letter to the Galatians this morning. That's coming, but it got bumped a few weeks. Uh, while I've been studying Galatians and doing some camping and other things, a lot has happened. After commiserating a bit with the elders in the aftermath of the landmark Supreme Court decision regarding same-sex marriage, and after seeing the response of many Christians in various public forums, it became pretty clear that we needed to address concerns related to that whole event and everything that led up to it before we embark on another series. So we're going to devote this Sunday and the next two after this to addressing those concerns from a biblical perspective and from a few different important angles. I especially encourage you to be here next Sunday and to invite any friends that you have, young or old, Christian or non-Christian, who might be trying to sort out how God can be a gracious and loving God if submitting to His terms for sex and marriage means that some people don't get to experience either sex or marriage. We'll see next week what makes the boundaries in God's design for sexuality and marriage exceedingly gracious rather than exceedingly burdensome. We'll see next week some things that will be as relevant to Christian singles as they are to people who are dealing with the struggles of same-sex attraction. And it's going to be very, very relevant to anyone who wants to be useful to God to encourage others who, who are facing those kinds of challenges in their lives. The Sunday after next, we're going to look very directly at how we as individuals and as a body, the local body of Christ, can and must reach out to and minister to the needs of those who are already in the midst of relationships or sexual activity or even sexual desires that don't fit with what the Bible declares to be blessed by God and acceptable in God's sight. But this morning, we're going to consider a much broader issue. And that is how God intends for His church to respond to opposition from the world. I'm going to read 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 John 5, 1 through 5. Turn to that if you have it, if you have your Bibles. If you don't, you, you, you need to get one. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is the one who overcomes the world but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? I'm going to pray in just a minute, but first I'm going to pose a question. 
How do you make a Christ follower nervous? Well, to the extent that he's really following Christ, you don't. You can take your best shot and then you can take it again and again and he will stand unfazed because your best shot is simply not in the same realm as his confidence in his Master and Savior. Now that is not to say that God will never make a Christ follower nervous. What God demanded of His own Son made Jesus sweat drops of blood the night before He went to the cross in our place. And the servants are not greater than the Master. But why are so many Christians so upset about how the world is treating Christians these days? According to the passage we just read, what is the victory that has already overcome the world? Our faith. And who gets to claim that victory? Well, if the victory is our faith, you would assume it's the people who have faith. Rightly placed faith. And that's exactly what John declares at the very beginning and the very end of these five verses. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, and then at the end of verse 5, he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Those words will sound familiar if you, if you know the Gospels. Because in Matthew 16, when Jesus asked His disciples, who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Those are the same two affirmations that John makes here. To believe that Jesus is the Christ is to believe all that the prophets declared about Jesus of Nazareth. That He is the promised Messiah in the line of David, sent from God. He is the one and only Savior of men and He is the King of all kings. And to believe that He is the Son of God is to believe that He is God in the flesh. Perfect man and perfect God. Heir of all that belongs to His Father. To believe these things about Jesus is to know and believe the love that God has for us. The love that He proved by sending that King of Heaven, His own Son, to die in our place. All of us who believe in Jesus Christ, just as Peter believed, overcome the world. Not some of us. All of us who believe in Jesus Christ overcome the world. Throughout the last three chapters of 1 John, John says that those people, those who believe in Christ, are the same people who love God because He first loved us. Our love is a response. And he says that those people are the same people who love one another, who love the people of God. In chapter 3, verse 22, John also says that those people are the same people who keep God's commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. And all those pieces fit perfectly together with what our Lord Jesus said in Matthew 20, 22 when He was asked, what is the greatest commandment? And He said, this is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and strength, and a second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. And He said, 
those two commandments fulfill the whole law and all that the prophets wrote. We love imperfectly, but we who trust Jesus Christ are marked out from this godless world by our love for God and by our love for each other. And by his own clear declaration, John says that he writes these things to believers not so that we will constantly question our salvation, but quite the opposite. In 1 John 5, 11-13, the first three verses I memorized as a Christian when I was 16 years old, the verses that God used to take the blinders off of my eyes and show me what He actually intended to do for men who redeem them. And the witness is this, that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. These things I have written to those of you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? That you may know that you may know that you have eternal life. Does God want you to spend your life guessing? Now whether you're brand new to that faith and that identity, and you're still just beginning to understand the ramifications of all of it, or whether you've been walking with Jesus Christ for 50 or 60 years, God has a promise here in these five verses to you, to us. We who trust in Jesus Christ are overcomers. Nothing that this world does to us is any threat to us at all. Not one thing. So what are we so upset about? I want us to think hard this morning about two questions, and that's the first one. Why are we upset about how the world is treating us? And secondly, are we showing the world what God intends for us to be showing? Let's pray. Dear Father, unless I'm reading things very wrongly, uh, Your church in America is at a crossroads right now. And You know exactly which path we need to take. We come before You as dependent sheep looking to our Good Shepherd and we ask You to make us hear our shepherd's voice clearly so that we may follow Him without reservation. And we ask this in His precious name. Why are we so upset? Now, some of you may be thinking, well, I'm not upset. <laughs> and if so, praise God. If, if that peace that you experience is based on the right realities, praise God. But I can assure you, assure you that there are some in this room sitting around you who are not saying that to themselves. They are not saying, I'm not upset. And there are some who might like to believe they're not upset, but if you listen to what they say, you realize that they aren't seeing themselves very accurately. I want to say this part right up front. This is very important. What I want to share with you this morning is not about what individual believers or groups of believers should or shouldn't be doing when it comes to engaging the culture. What I'm concerned about this morning is how we handle opposition from the culture 
and opposition within the church to the things that we are supposed to hold fast. We have great freedom in Christ to be involved in all manner of political activism, to run for and hold public office, to speak out against injustices in the culture, and even to protest within the confines of the law of the land policies and practices that violate the character of God. Just in the past couple of weeks, the grotesque disregard for God as the Creator and owner of human life has seemed to reach new and even more depraved levels than has ever been the case in this country before. And I believe Christians have both the freedom and the responsibility to take a stand on issues like that within the culture. But we need to be very clear about this. Getting the culture to stop sinning is not the mission of Christ's church in the world. And we need to be very clear about what the mission of Christ's church in the world actually is because if we're not, you can be sure we won't be doing it. If we as the church in America had been steadfastly and courageously doing the mission that God had assigned to us all along, beloved, we would never have enjoyed the generations of cultural tolerance that we have experienced. As our dear brother Colin McDougall says, there is no place on earth where it's okay to preach the Gospel. And there never was. When we insist that it should be okay for us to preach the truth of Jesus Christ, okay with our culture, we are pursuing the wrong objective. And God will not bless that pursuit. I find it troubling to hear Christians speak so stridently about how America has set itself up for God's judgment because of the way it, the culture is treating God's church. That judgment is most certainly coming. That assessment is correct. It's coming on this whole corrupt earth. God is most certainly going to vindicate His people. And when He does, no one who has opposed Christ or the people of Christ will be left standing. You can be sure of it. But that's God's assignment, not ours. And it's going to happen on God's timetable, not ours. And it's not going to happen right now. I believe it is us, the church of Jesus Christ, that has set itself up for God's judgment now. And I think we're proving that to be the case by how outraged we are at being characterized by the world badly and treated by the world unjustly. In 1 Peter 4, Peter declares that the fiery ordeal of sharing in the sufferings of Christ is the normal Christian life rather than some big surprise. He says that that ordeal of painful persecution that God has engineered to test and refine us has come upon us for our blessing. He even says it's cause for rejoicing, not for stunned panic. Brother Robert this morning read from Romans 5, it says, we exult in our tribulations. We don't run from them. 1 Peter 4.17, right after 
what I was just citing. Peter says, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the Gospel of God? It is not the inevitability or the timing of God's judgment of this depraved world that we need to be concerned about. God will take care of that. It's His judgment of us. It's His assessment of us, His own household, that should be getting our attention. And it looks to my feeble eyes like we're giving Him plenty of cause to get serious about that judgment. I've been reading a lot of articles and blogs and Facebook posts and Twitter posts and even a few Instagrams in recent weeks. And you know what I keep seeing? I keep seeing Christians saying, in effect, give me back my bubble. The church in America has been building this big, wonderful bubble of cultural acceptability for more than 200 years. We have gotten to be Christians without any great discomfort or sacrifice. For a long time, we've had a very real influence over the laws and policies to which we and every other American are subjected every day of our lives. For much of the history of our country, we had an influential voice in all aspects of our culture. Government, education, media, marketplace. But just in case you've been on a really long cruise, those days are over. And while there is much that was good about those days, there is much that was not good. You can go all the way back to the origins of, our, of this once great country. And I can, could ask any of the historians, I'm looking at one of them over there right now, in our, in our group, whether they would agree that freedom from religious persecution was a significant factor in what drove many of the first settlers to risk their lives and crossed vast oceans to get here? And I'm confident that the answer to that would be yes. Beloved, is fleeing from persecution a worthy objective for Christ's church? What does the Bible tell us about that question? Now don't misunderstand me. It is not wrong for Christians to long for a place in which we can worship without fear of persecution. That's part of our hope in Christ. That's coming. The problem shows up when we demand that that place be here and that that freedom from persecution be now when God's Word tells us over and over that the reason we're still here in this world now is to share in the sufferings of Christ as the necessary path to advancing His kingdom and as the necessary path to sharing in His glory. I'll ask a question I've asked you before. When Jesus took on humanity for our sakes, when was it that He got to put an end to the shame and reclaim His glory? Was it before or after He died? Are the slaves greater than the Master? Why would we think that God somehow owes it to us to grant us a persecution-free existence before we die? when our Master had to endure until His death the shame 
and deprivation and one amazing day, the abandonment by His Father that you and I deserved and that He despised. Again, don't get me wrong. God doesn't require us to happily hand a nice sharp axe to the guy who wants to remove our heads. The Apostle Paul appealed his case all the way to Caesar because Paul was a Roman citizen. And the law of Rome provided for that process for Roman citizens. There's nothing wrong with that. But the question is, how do you respond when you lose the appeal? Do you demand that justice is owed to you here and now? Do you demand that the culture's tolerance of you, along with a nice, safe, air-conditioned place to worship with your fellow believers, is owed to you? That the right not to be falsely labeled a hater is owed to you? Do you think the accusation of being haters is new to Christians? After the burning of Rome in 64 AD, the, the first century Roman historian Tacitus recorded that the emperor Nero accused the already marginalized and poverty-stricken Christians in the city of Rome of starting those fires. According to Tacitus, quote, an immense multitude was convicted not so much of the crime of firing the city, I love the way he worded that, as of hatred against mankind. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with the skins of beasts, they were torn by dogs and perished, or were nailed to crosses, or were doomed to the flames and burnt to serve as nightly illumination when daylight had expired. End quote. Christians were used as torches in the streets of Rome to illuminate, illuminate the streets after dark. You think we've got it bad. Lest we get all excited about what's owed to us, we need to remember the one who is our perfect example. You and I and every human being owe Jesus our humble and absolute submission. But if Jesus had demanded what was owed to Him the first time He came, we would all be eternally lost. And we as His church are still here on earth to continue doing what He started doing when He was here the first time. To seek and save the lost. And we have to follow His pattern. His example. If we want to continue to be useful to Him. To seek and save the lost. How do we know what our response to the world's unjust treatment of Christians should be? We look at His response to our unjust treatment of Him. And His response was not to respond at all. He didn't react. He acted. He never deviated from the mission for which God sent Him from heaven to earth. While being reviled, he did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he did not open his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers. So he did not open his mouth. Why? Because it did not serve his mission to defend himself. 
if we want to know what it looks like for us as members of the body of Christ to live as overcomers, it's very instructive for us to get real familiar with our Lord's letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Each of those seven letters ends with a powerful promise directly from Jesus to every child of God who overcomes. To understand what that looks like, to be an overcomer, to live as an overcomer, we have to pay attention to what Jesus rebukes about the church's behavior and what He praises about the church's behavior. And that's a little different for each of the seven churches that He addresses. By the way, I believe that these churches in Revelation 2 and 3 represent a couple of different vantage points at the same time. First, I believe they show us what different local churches were like in different places simultaneously. And we can look at what he describes in those seven churches and see all of that going on in different churches right in our own present time. I also believe that the, the letters to the seven churches track a progression for the, the worldwide church from one place to another from the time of the ascension of Christ to the second coming of Christ. A progression that includes periods of good performance and periods of lousy performance on the part of the church and that appears to end with lousy performance in the letter to the church at Laodicea. Now, I'm not going to take the time to dig into these seven letters in any comprehensive way this morning. That would take weeks. (laughs) But I want us to notice some important things about the tone and the trend in these letters when it comes to what Jesus rebukes and what Jesus praises. Does Jesus rebuke the church for not changing with the times? For not being sufficiently adaptable to the ever-changing sensibilities of the culture as if doing so would somehow open bigger doors to the proclamation of the Gospel? In case you haven't noticed, there are lots of professing Christians saying that that's what we need to be doing. We need to be adapting to the culture because we're losing our voice in the culture for the sake of the Gospel. Is that what Jesus praises? No. He doesn't praise adaptability in the church. In fact, if you pay attention to what He's saying in Revelation 2 and 3, He praises exactly the opposite. He rebukes the church at Ephesus for leaving their first love. He commands them to remember from where they have fallen, to repent and return to the deeds they did at first, not come up with new ones. If they don't, He says He will remove their lampstand out of its place. Beloved, I believe the lampstands of the seven churches represent the witness of the church of Jesus Christ. They represent the usefulness of local churches to show forth the light of Christ in the midst of the darkness that surrounds us. We don't want Christ taking our lampstand out of the way. He exhorts the church at Smyrna in the midst of great persecution and testing to be faithful unto death. Does that sound like adaptability to you? He praises the church at Pergamum for holding fast His name and for not denying His faith. He rebukes that same church for tolerating 
some among them who were trying very hard to get the church to embrace the ways of the depraved culture. People who were coming into the church community and telling believers that it was okay to eat things sacrificed to idols and get this, to commit acts of sexual immorality. Sound familiar? He praises the church at Thyatira for their deeds, for their love and faith and service and perseverance, noting that their deeds of late are greater than at first. They're not different, they're better. Then he rebukes that same church for tolerating a false prophetess who was leading Christ's bondservants astray so that, quote, they commit acts of sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. We're going to look next week at the idolatry of sex. Finally, he exhorts those in the church who have not embraced such falsehood, saying, what you have, hold fast until I come. He praises the church at Philadelphia because they kept His Word and have not denied His name. He praises them because they kept the Word of His perseverance. He says to them, I am, I am coming quickly. Hold fast to what you have in order that no one take away your crown. Hold fast. Hold fast. Hold fast. Persevere. Continue doing the good things. Go back to doing the things that were good before that you have stopped doing. Does any of this sound to you like Jesus is looking for the church to become more tolerant of the sin and falsehood that pervades the culture so it can pervade the church also? Does it sound like He's calling the church to be flexible and sensitive to the sensibilities of the culture? Beloved, do you and I have the courage both to acknowledge and to, to declare to one another and to this world that what Jesus praises about our response to the wickedness, the wickedness in our culture is our intolerance of it within His church. When the pastor of City Church in San Francisco, a pastor known for decades for his courageous faithfulness to God's Word in the midst of a city consumed with self-indulgence, when that pastor recently declared by edict that same-sex marriages are to be treated as acceptable to God and same-sex couples embraced into membership in His church, was He doing what Christ praises or was He doing what Christ rebukes? Read it. Was He doing what's loving? That's a critically important question. That's what he says he was doing. He's being loving. And he's exhorting the church to be loving. Is that dramatic change of church policy loving toward God, toward the God who created the church and sex and marriage? Is it loving toward gays? Is it ever loving to declare that what God calls sin isn't sin? Would you have ever gotten saved if your friends had convinced you that your favorite sins weren't sins at all? 
We'll talk about that a lot in the next couple of weeks. Is it loving? Here are a couple of other very important questions before we move away from these seven letters. In these letters, did Jesus rebuke the church for failing to fix the sins of the culture? No. He rebuked them for tolerating sin and for tolerating those who advocated sin in His church. What should make us not just nervous, but firmly resolved, what should put us in fighting mode is not the world's failure to embrace the church, it's the church's willingness to embrace the world. Did Jesus rebuke the church for failing to defend themselves against persecution? Never. Did Jesus rebuke the church for failing to demand back the rights and freedoms that were being taken away from them by an anti-Christian culture? Never. Beloved, we need to expect to be hated by the culture and loved by God just as Jesus said we would be. We need to see both of those, being hated by the culture and being loved by God, as privileges that we receive because God has made that which is true of His Son to be true of us in His Son. And when we do, then we will not be disappointed by anything that either of those do to us, the world or God. I said at the beginning there were two questions I wanted us to consider. The first is why we're so upset. Here's the second. Are we showing the world what we should be showing? Are we showing the world what Jesus means for us to be showing the world? And the question I'm posing is really more specific than just how we're living in general. It's about how we are responding to the attacks coming at us from the culture. The world is watching that response. You can be sure of it. More importantly, there are some people out there who are unsaved and uncertain about what's true who are watching our response to opposition from the world. That has always been the case throughout the history of God's church. Are we showing them what we're supposed to be showing them? I'm not asking whether the world is seeing what they're supposed to be seeing. That's God's problem. I'm asking if we're showing them what Christ intends for us to show. I want to drill down on that question a little further in the bright light of a very well-known passage in Daniel chapter 3. Many of you know the story well about the three Hebrew youths who were renamed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as Babylonian exiles after they'd been taken out of Judah into exile by Nebuchadnezzar. When Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, made a decree demanding that everyone bow down to a giant golden image that he had commissioned to be made, those three Hebrew young men refused to bow down to that image and they simply carried on worshiping the one true God. And some of you may be thinking, yeah, see, those guys didn't put up with Nebuchadnezzar's tyranny for even a minute. Wrong. That would grossly mischaracterize the attitude that they demonstrated toward the king. The attitude, by the way, which God commanded of Judah when he, when he 
sent them into exile. They not only submitted to everything the king required of them except what God expressly forbade them to do, they submitted with humility and respect toward the king just as God commanded them to do. Every action and every word of those three young men demonstrated respect for Nebuchadnezzar's authority and for Nebuchadnezzar's office. Even when he was about to throw them into a fiery furnace. In the same way, when Daniel was later thrown into a lion's den by the next king, the Persian king Darius, for refusing to pray to the king, Daniel's salutation when he saw King Darius standing at the mouth of the lion's den the next morning, while Daniel stood there untouched by the lions, his salutation to the king was, O king, live forever. Daniel 6.21 That was the same salutation of blessing and respect used by all Babylonian and Persian subjects and officials toward their tyrannical kings. It was a call for blessing on the king, not for curse. It meant, may you and your kingdom abide and prosper. Daniel didn't say, O king, you're the sorriest excuse for a king that the world has ever seen. He didn't say, O king, I can't wait to see what Yahweh has in store for you. He said, O king, live forever. When Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were given an audience before Nebuchadnezzar just before he had him thrown into the fiery furnace that was so hot that it killed the men who threw them in, they had an opportunity standing there before Nebuchadnezzar just before that to say whatever was on their minds. And I'd have to say they pretty much had nothing to lose. What did they show Nebuchadnezzar? Well, here are a few things they didn't show him. They didn't show him disrespect. They didn't show him anger. In fact, the only one in the room who was outraged was Nebuchadnezzar because he couldn't get these guys to bow down to his precious image. They didn't show him fear. They didn't lament their terrible and unjust plight. They didn't speak about their rights. They didn't even ask God to judge Nebuchadnezzar who clearly deserved judgment and whom God judged later on His terms and His timing. What did they show Nebuchadnezzar? We need to pay attention to this. They showed Him respect. They showed Him humility. They declared that they fully trusted the power of God to deliver them. They showed Him their resolve to obey God regardless of what He did to them. They showed Him their resolve to trust and obey God regardless of what God Himself did to them. Whether He delivered them or not. And what's amazing is they didn't just show those things to Nebuchadnezzar. Because by God's doing through His faithful prophet Daniel, They've been showing those things to every generation of God's people and many people in the world ever since. Those three men, those three youths are still showing those things to the world. Do you think that God memorialized the words and actions of those three young men for hundreds of generations so that you and I could do the opposite of what they did? 
so that we could declare to the world that we feel no compulsion to show respect to unjust men that God has placed in authority over us. So that we could show the world that we are outraged over being treated so badly by the government and the culture. So we could loudly lament the injustices to which we are being subjected. So that we could give every appearance that our well-being depends on righting those injustices here and now of getting our rights back instead of waiting on the God who always judges justly. So that we could call down curses from our God on those who treat us badly. We, the church of Jesus Christ, are as much aliens and strangers in this world as those three young men were in Babylon. We are the people of God living in exile in a godless culture. What are we showing to that godless world? What are we showing to the people in that godless world that God is at work by His Holy Spirit to convict of sin and righteousness and judgment and to draw to faith in our glorious Savior. What are we showing them? Are we showing them our joy? Are we showing them the peace that surpasses all understanding? Are we showing them the hope that is the anchor of our souls? Beloved, listen carefully to these words that Peter wrote to the churches of the dispersion. To the believers who reside as exiles in this world. I'm going to start at 1 Peter 1, verse 2. Set me right at the end. May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who, according to His great mercy, <laughs> has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. You who are protected. You who are protected through faith, by the power of God, through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. That the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though that faith is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen Him, you love Him, and though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. That is what an overcomer looks like. Just imagine for a moment what God might do through us, the people in this room, not to fix the culture of this corrupt world, but to pluck men out of that darkness and put them in His marvelous light 
if the world got to consistently see those things in us instead of the things that we've been showing. I couldn't find the original source book for, for this quote, but it's attributed by many reliable sources to Carl F.H. Henry, a respected theologian and founding editor of Christianity Today, who is now with the Lord. Henry said, the early church didn't say in dismay, look what the world has come to. They said in delight, look what has come into the world. When our unbelieving friends or even our brothers and sisters in Christ are bemoaning the rotten state of affairs in this world, what if we celebrated in our words and in our attitudes and in the countenance on our faces all the glorious things that belong to us as fellow heirs with Jesus Christ? Instead of speaking of our leaders and educators and media pundits as if they had somehow managed to become even worse sinners than we are, what if we took every opportunity to humbly exalt the One who redeems even our depraved hearts? The One who bore the wretchedness of even my sin and yours on Himself so that He could make us His treasured possession. What if we took the opportunity to speak of our earnest desire to see every lost person come to know our blessed Redeemer? Brothers and sisters, that creaking sound you hear is not doors closing for the proclamation of the Gospel. It's doors opening for the proclamation of the Gospel. An opportunity is being handed to us that is unprecedented in the history of this country. Are we going to squander it with relentless grumbling about how badly we're being treated? Or are we going to take full advantage of it by celebrating Jesus Christ and all that can never, ever be taken away from us in Him? Are we going to be overcome? Or are we going to be overcomers? Now is the time for us to understand that that is the choice God is giving us today. We can either kill this great opportunity with the death of a thousand convincing qualifications and then watch as God sets aside the lampstand of our witness in the world. Or we can own and live our calling. We can own and live the, the, the true story of our glorious Savior and Master and coming King. We can own and live our assignment to joyfully share in the sufferings of Christ now, controlled and energized by the confident expectation of His coming glory and of ours together with Him. Which will it be? Dear Father, I pray with all my heart that I have given no offense except the offense that comes from You and Your Word to Your children when we are focused on the wrong things. If I have, Lord, find me out and correct me. But Father, to the extent that I haven't, to the extent that these things that we've looked at just now in Your Word indeed are calling us 
to repent. To repent of a defensive posture in order that we may boldly proclaim the truth of our Savior, then we ask, Father, that You would bring about that repentance. We do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are powerful beyond imagination for the destruction of fortresses. You've called us to stand against every lofty thing that is raised against the knowledge of God and of Christ and to take every thought captive to Christ. Father, teach us to do that and to do it quickly. Use this body. Use this, Father, we pray, use this local body powerfully, powerfully to build up Your kingdom. Show this world through us a joy inexpressible because of what's true of us in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His precious name. Amen.